0: 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when you get there, let's go ahead and stand, and we'll read through the text together this morning. It says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court, In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who justifies me or judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Excuse me. Now these things, brethren... I've figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we've been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We've been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I've sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Lord, we believe this is your word for us today. Let him who desires to hear God speak, read the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we believe that you've brought these specific individuals in your sovereignty to this place for such a time as this, to hear such a word as this. And Lord, we pray that we would hear As you say seven times to churches in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, I pray in this place, wherever there is an ear or an eardrum that's making a noise and registering in a brain, Lord, that there would be people that are hearing you this morning. But that they wouldn't hear Rory, God. That their eyes wouldn't be on man. They would hear you, God. You would come and you would touch hearts and you would convict hearts lord we need to be convicted by the holy spirit lord we need to be changed and jesus we pray that we would not leave this room the same men and the same women that we came in as change us god by your spirit for your glory in jesus name amen go ahead and be seated If you're new to the church, uh, we encourage you to get on calvarycrookcounty.com and uh, listen to the teachings that are placed online. Uh, if you're new, uh, since we've started 1 Corinthians, we'd encourage you to listen to the last six teachings to get caught up on the context of 1 Corinthians. Uh, last week, we read out of the book of Acts, chapter 18, how the church in Corinth was started. Quite an exciting adventure. Uh, But we see that the honeymoon was over by the time Paul writes this. And that the people in Corinth had become carnal Christians. And the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is carnal Christianity. A group of people that are trying to walk in the world and also walk with Christ. And there was too much of Christ in them to let them enjoy the world. And there was too much world in them for them to really enjoy Christ. And so there's much correction in this book to the church in Corinth, And one thing that we've already seen is that the Corinthians are a people who've become quite proud, quite puffed up, thinking that they have arrived. Become very boastful in their programs, in the way they do things, and in the teachers that they have. And Paul has spent some time addressing that already in this book. In fact, in the chapter we're in today, we studied verses 1 through, um, through 7 last week. And so we're not going to cover that this morning. Uh, we're going to begin at verse 8, where Paul continues on with this correction to them of their pride and being puffed up and thinking they know better than anybody else. And they've got it down better than anybody else. And, uh, and he just corrects them. He really challenges them on that, as if they had made it happen themselves. And verse 7 just says, hey, what you have Did you get it by yourself or did you receive it as a gift of grace from God? And everyone would say, well, really, it was a gift of grace from God. And he says, well, then why are you bragging and boasting like you did it yourself? You didn't. It's grace, all right? And so we move on in that, and I hope that gives you enough background to read verse 8. And this this is where we begin this morning, our text for the day, where he says, you are already full You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Um, You know, the elders and myself, over the last few years, we've taken an online seminary class on uh, Christ-centered preaching. And one of the things that they teach you in the class is how to kind of build up a sermon in a way that people, like, they start going, yeah, yeah, you know, and then you pull the rug out from under them and show them that was wrong. And the way you were building it up, it was wrong. And their way of thinking and agreeing, it was all wrong. This is the truth. And, and as hard as I try, I, I've never been very good at that. You know, like It's okay to worship the devil. Yeah, woo! And it's okay to, you know, and no! And pull that rug out and it's not okay. Okay, um, just in case you're wondering, like, I could get into this church. Paul kind of does that here. Uh, In verse 8, you are already full. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Yeah, we are. You're already rich, Corinth. You got it all. Yeah, yeah, we do. You've reigned as kings without us apostles. You don't need us. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) He pulls the rug out. Paul's a bit sarcastic here. With the intent to prove a point. Modern day lingo or vernacular would be, my, you Corinthians seem to have it all. Isn't it funny that we apostles have nothing? Paul uses strong sarcasm in this text. And at first read, you might think, that's a little uncalled for. (laughs) That's a little cruel. He's not trying to make fun of the Corinthians or be a jerk. But he wants to shake them up. He wants to shake them up out of their proud, self-willed thinking. As Morgan says, he was laughing at them with holy laughter, and yet with utter contempt for what they'd been doing. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says in their great way of talking, Ye act as if ye needed no more to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And as if ye had received the kingdom for which the Corinthians had strived to suffer. Or excuse me, for which Christians had strived to suffer. The Corinthians had been acting like they were in the kingdom now. Nothing more was needed. There was no more to be done. There was no more process of sanctification. We've got it all right here in this church. We are full with spiritual gifts. We've got lots of numbers. We've got great named teachers and preachers and pastors. We're better than everybody else. Kingdom now philosophy was alive and well in Corinth. And so Paul pulls the rug out from under them to wake them up and to shake them up. Reading in one book last night, I have to get to it in my Kindle. It says this, we scarcely know of a more effective way of treating vanity than by sarcasm, treat the vain, swaggering man before you, not according to your judgment of him, but according to his estimate of himself. Speak to him as one as stupendous as he believes himself to be, and your irony will stab him to the quick. Sarcasm often becomes the instrument of a great manly soul roused into indignation Later on in this book, it says, The irony of a Christly man, however pungent, is not malign, but generous. Lord, teach us how to reach men where they're at and speak to them where they're at. And I believe that Paul's sarcasm, his irony, is, is very much for us as a 2013 American church in Prineville today. In fact, letting this simmer on my heart this week, I believe it's for you. I believe it's for you, Calvary Chapel of Crick County. I believe it's for Rory Rogers. Listen, listen to you. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us apostles. I indeed wish that you did reign that we could reign with you. There's many of you in this church that believe you've arrived. You've arrived. Oh, I've been born again, so I'm like, done. This Christian journey is complete. I've got a successful business, I've got a successful family, I've got a great life. I live in America where it is comfort. In fact, America and the American dream is all about me building up my kingdom. And if I'm comfortable and I'm relaxed and I'm just not got a care in the world, I don't need anybody or anything. I don't need the programs that the church is, uh, is providing to make disciples, to expand the kingdom of God, to be part of their vision of, of discipleship and mission and bringing about worshipers for the glory of God. No, because I'm comfortable. I'm good. I'm full. I'm rich and paul would say you're not you have not arrived rory rogers you're not there yet and paul or excuse me john the apostle is given a post resurrection vision of jesus christ himself where jesus says write some letters for me take a note and send it to these seven churches And he says, and when you write the letter to the church of Laodicea, I want you to write this to them. I know your works. I know what's going on. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say... I am rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I will counsel to you to buy from me gold that's been refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. That you would anoint your eyes with eyesab, that you could see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. There are people in this church that feel they've arrived. I'm as good as I'm ever going to be with the Lord. I'm as good in my walk as it's ever going to get. Or this is as far as I want to be. This is good enough. I have need of nothing. And the Lord and through the context of the rest of the New Testament would tell you it's not over. There's still a battle. There's still a fight. There's still a mission. It's going to be an adventure. It's going to be exciting. There's going to be some high times and there's going to be some glory. There's going to be some kingdom now. But there's going to be some suffering. There's going to be some getting chewed up and spit out. There's going to be some hard times. There's going to be some sickness. We're not rich yet. The kingdom is not finally done. It's going to come. It's partly here, but we're not yet in need of nothing. And we need to receive a warning today. As Paul warns the Corinthians... As Jesus Christ himself warns a church called the lukewarm church, don't you dare settle with being lukewarm. Sure, in this room, we don't have a bunch of Jesus haters. Jesus wouldn't say, you're a bunch of cold people. You just absolutely hate me. But do we have lukewarm? Do we have people that say, yeah, you know, when I read the New Testament, I see Christianity as something that is radical. But I'm cool with, right here, the Lord would spur us on by his spirit today to more, to more, to being part of what he has for his church. The Corinthians thought that they were complete and perfect and finished in their service for the kingdom. And Paul says, hey, you know what? I wish that you were. Because by the time that happens, I'm going to be perfect and complete. And my work will be done. But we're not there yet. Paul will describe his life in a few verses and say, that hasn't happened yet. In my life or the life of the representatives, the apostles. Now the Corinthians, they were rich in spiritual gifts. Paul uses that language. Paul says that in this book. That they are raised and seated in heavenly places. So isn't it just sensible for the Corinthians to believe that they're done? Or the good things that are happening in this church? Wouldn't it be just logical to say, we're done. Let's just, we're done right here. This is good. We're comfortable. We're done. With the Corinthians, they were in Christ, but they were also in Corinth. They still had The world of Corinth seeping into their congregation. Paul would say that it would make them uh, be like purged with leaven. Like leaven creeps into a lump of dough or lump of bread. Christ impinged upon their Corinthian life. And the Corinthian life impinged upon the life that was to be Christ. And the Corinthians took a truth that was spoken to them by Paul and they pushed it out to an extreme. That they were rich in spiritual gifts. They pushed that out to this triumphant walk where there would be no suffering whatsoever. If there's anything in your life, Corinth, that would cause you to be uncomfortable or to suffer or to go through some kind of trial, then that's not for you. Just step away from it. Just step back from anything that would be uncomfortable Pleasant. Paul says, that sounds kind of good. If we were with you, then we'd be kings too. But we are nowhere near being kings yet. Because we're still about this business of taking the kingdom to the farthest parts of the earth. Verse 9 says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The apostles were considered last, as men condemned to death. And he speaks here of this idea that the Corinthians knew well. It was the idea of a Roman triumph parade. Criminals and prisoners being paraded through Rome in humiliation, condemned men ready to die. He says, I feel like it's the Lord that's actually made us in this life to be last, of least importance. The image that Paul is conjuring up here is is either of this Colosseum idea that we know from Russell Crowe and Gladiator. You know, nowadays we get a good idea. Not that I've seen it or that you should see it or anything like that. No, it's a pretty good flick. Um. This idea of the Colosseum and being paraded as a slave or being paraded by the conquering Roman general where he would come in from the battle and from the conquest and he would ride into Rome, a ticker tape parade, roses flying, flowers flying, the crowd of Rome, this population of Rome cheering as he would come through the city, first of all, with the conquering generals on their stallions, on their horses, coming in with great... Pomp and circumstance. Following the generals would be all of the booty that they collected on the road. Just treasures and gold. And just, oh, look at all this stuff. The plunder from the battle. Yeah, everyone's cheering. Then come the slaves. Then come the men who were the conquered. The defeated. The captives. Who were condemned to die in the arena. And even worse than that. After the captives came the enemy commanders. They were the very last. The enemy commanders not only were condemned to die, but they would be saved to be made a mockery out of. They would say, hey, this this was Judea or this was Greece or whatever. This is the conquered country. Look at how bad we conquered them. This is their general. And they would make a mockery of this man or men. They would make them die in the most painful, brutal fashions. You can read the War of the Jews that Josephus writes, and you can read about how um, uh, the, the Roman general, the emperor, the Caesar, what they did to the commanding men of the Judean army in 70 AD when Jerusalem fell. And it, is, it just makes your heart beat fast, and you just kind of get a little nauseous that this, what, these were the practices of the Romans. And Paul's basically saying, That's us. That's us as apostles. That's us as servants of the Lord. We are the last guys in the parade. Men who are condemned to die. He says, we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word spectacle, I like this. It's the word theatron. We're part of this theater to the world. As the apostles and you read Fox's book of martyrs and you read the book of Acts, you see how they were publicly humiliated, Paul says here, before angels and men. We were part of this great spectacle, this great theater in the world where even the heavenly hosts were looking down and witnessing the suffering that we were going through as men condemned to die. And the Roman citizens knew this spectacle well. The emperors of Rome would keep the masses in check by keeping their stomachs full and their minds entertained. And you know what I think America is right about there? We're fat and sassy and we're entertained. And we're not paying attention to what is happening in the world today. We're not paying attention to what's happening even in Bible prophecy and what the Lord is doing with his kingdom. The bread and the circuses were Caesar's formula. Various forms of Roman entertainment were known by the Romans as spectacles. And all of these different amphitheaters were built. And you can go to Israel today, and there's amphitheaters all over the place, just in the middle of cities these days. And they're 2,000-year-old amphitheaters where gladiators fought to the death, where men condemned to die uh, breathed their last breath. It was kind of the Talladega of their day. The big population would come out to watch Men condemned to die, to watch them suffer, to watch them be clothed in sheepskin and fed to bears and lions, or to watch them fight each other to the death with weapons. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 33, the book that we're going through on Wednesday night, the author says in 1033 that the Hebrew people were made to be a spectacle through their reproaches and tribulations. And they were companions of people that were going through reproach and tribulation. In fact, the book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who'd become so persecuted they were considering leaving Christ and going back to a a comfortable system of Judaism. Paul would say, don't do that. Don't do that. Both to angels and to men, the apostles were spectacles. They were like a theater to gaze upon. His followers were a spectacle to the holy angels. And isn't that interesting? As you look at the scriptures, the holy angels take a deep interest in all of the progressive steps of redemption. They're interested in this. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 10 says that in God's manifold wisdom, his plan of salvation, that it would be made known by the church to the angels. Even the angels will glorify God in his great manifold wisdom, his beautiful plan of salvation. The angels and the principalities and the powers, both good and bad angels, will be wowed by God's plan of redemption. And one reason be because there was never a plan of redemption for them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says that The ministering and the preaching of the gospel that we do by the Holy Spirit are things that angels desire to look into. I mean, the angels have witnessed the whole thing from beginning to end. They understand what happened when Lucifer fell. They understand what happened when Adam and Eve fell. They understand God's plan of redemption right from the beginning, and then how God himself took on flesh and dwelt among his creation to be mocked and beaten and chewed up and spit out and whipped and stripped and murdered by his own creation only to rise from the dead in victory and save a people. And the angels have witnessed this whole thing. And so when Christians are going around telling people about this beautiful plan. The angels are like, This is incredible. This is incredible, God. But they also witness men and women suffering for Christ. The Corinthian Christians had two problems they were so proud of their own spirituality, but they were also somewhat embarrassed by Paul and the other apostles. And the suffering that they were going through for the gospel. Verse 10 says, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. You know, Paul's not being dramatic here. This is really the language that was used about him and the other apostles in Acts 17, 18. When Paul is in Athens and he's preaching to the philosophers, they look at him and they say, what does this babbler want to say? That's a warm welcoming. (laughs) Guess I'll present my case now. (laughs) Feels good, doesn't it? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Look at your method of advancing the kingdom living in the lap of luxury. In Acts chapter 26, verse 24, Paul is in chains, standing before Festus, and Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And Paul says, I am not mad, most noble Festus but I speak the words of truth and reason. When you are going to preach the gospel, when you are going to preach the resurrection from the dead, you'll be mocked. Corinthians, you'll be mocked. Crook County, you'll be mocked. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We studied that in chapter one of 1 Corinthians. But to we who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. What a sight Paul must have been. One of these qualities in and of themselves would be uh, cause for pity. I mean, think about when you're with somebody and you've been working hard on the job all day, and you're working so hard you don't get a chance to eat, and by the end of the day, you know you're, you're tired and you're hot and you're sweaty and you're hungry and you're famished and you're ready to eat. But Paul has all of these traits of being hungry. How you doing, Paul? I want you to think about this. Think about what it's like to be hungry, and imagine how are you doing, Paul? I'm hungry. How you doing, Paul? I am really thirsty. This is, this is stuff that Paul went through. I mean, I, I've been laboring to get the gospel out there. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. And just like when we're on our job sites, you know, and someone's been working and they just like rip their shirt on a nail. You know, and their shirt's full, of greasy and sawdust and just, ah. How you doing, Paul. Well, I've been laboring, I'm hungry, my stomach's growling, I got cotton mouth, my I'm thirsty. Look at what I'm wearing. I've been, it's, I've been working so hard for the kingdom that my clothes are ripped up. I've been beaten up, got a split lip, a little blood from my nose, this and that, and I'm homeless. That's what Paul is writing to the Corinthians. We are full. We are rich, we are wealthy, we have need of nothing, we're reigning as kings. And here's Paul, a little shaky as he's writing, he's thirsty, he's hungry. He hasn't had a good bed to sleep on in a while. He's been beaten up, like, have you read the book of Acts? Have you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and the shipwrecks and the beating and the times he died and the times, you know... Nights and days that he'd spend out in the cold. Nights and days that he'd spend in the deep ocean because he was shipwrecked on his missionary journey. Do you know what Paul went through? Do you know what the other apostles went through? He was beaten. It's the word buffeted as a slave is beaten. 1 Peter 2.20 references that. It's the reverse state of the Corinthians reigning as kings. Paul mastered before him being buffeted as a slave, just as his master was buffeted before a slave's death of being crucified. One man said, it's been ringing in my heart all week, are there none still who listen to Christianity rather as a voice soothing their fears then as a bugle summoning them to conflict, be ye followers of me. That's verse 16. Imitate me. He means that there is not one standard of duty for him and the apostles and another standard of duty for us in Crook County. No, imitate me. Get the word out, make disciples, make stands for holiness, be about my mission and my business to where you could imitate me and say, I'm hungry, I've been laboring for the gospel today. Man, I, I was sharing with a guy downtown and man, he let me have it. His words hurt me, he punched me in the face. I, I know what you're saying, Paul. this writer goes on to say all is wrong with us until we are made somehow to recognize that we have no right to selfishly become rich while Paul is driven through life with scarcely one day's bread provided do you think that's just for the Corinthians or do you think it's for the modern day American church as well I think it's for us I think we need to check ourselves today Each one of us, myself included. Verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. On top of it all, they were working. They were making tents. They were laboring to to try to get some food to put in their belly. Or they were working to not be burdens to the churches they were ministering to. His own hands provided for his own necess- necessities, as well as other peoples that were with him. He was working to bless people. And all the while, whenever they would be blasphemed, what would they do back? Hey Amen. bless you. I'm going to speak kind words to you. Man, I, I want to see you just be happy whenever they would be persecuted, and that word persecute means to be sought out and pressed into, whenever men would just come after them with harsh words or harsh, harsh physical punishment, persecuting them, pressing against them, they would endure and keep going. Do you think they took to heart the Beatitudes when Jesus says, bless those who persecute you? Bless and do not curse. Rejoice when they revile you and say all kinds of evil things against you, for that is how they treated the prophets who came before you. Bless them when you're persecuted. There's no glory in the life of the steward. Do you remember how Paul said to be regarded as as a, if you're in ministry, if you're a pastor, if you're gonna be about the father's business, how should you be looked at? You should be looked at as a servant, verse one. What was the word? Hyperetes. And it means under rower, the lowest part of the boat. You're the guy down there just as a slave rowing the boat. You might have a two year lifespan and your work is to just row that boat and obey the guy up on the top deck. You row that boat. That's your job. Paul says, you think of me like that. Or as a steward who's been entrusted with a great deal of responsibility and is required of a steward that one be found faithful. There is no glory in the life of the steward. Nor the life of the apostle. He says, being defamed we entreat, verse 13 we've been made the filth of the world and the off-scouring of all things until now. The filth of the world speaks of of something that is loathsome. Just, you know, if you're speaking of a, a filthy smell or a filthy sight, something that just causes bitter disgust. It speaks of refuse or garbage. We've all been to the dump, right? You're like let's get this stuff out of here and get that. You know, ah, you know, you're driving away as fast as you can. Some of you go pick through stuff, and there's some things to be had. Recycle, Recycle. but we all know that is that is loathsome, right? We got to be careful. There's a man in our body now who works, and he drives equipment over it. You know, and he would agree. It's like, yeah, it's, I don't like to roll in it. Um, and Paul says. That's the apostle's life to the world, and even to another church, the Corinthians. They're like, "Ah, oh, Paul, ah, oh, put a shirt on, man, take a shower. You know, brush your teeth, Paul. I've just been laboring for the gospel so much. Ah, oh, it's not what we would say. You, you know, we're rich, we're full, we need nothing. He says." We've been made, and this is actually, we've been made by the Lord as this. Do you catch that? We've been made by God as the filth of the world. We've studied that in 1 Corinthians. That that pleases the Lord through the foolishness of the message preached preached to bring many sons to glory. That's God's sovereign plan is that as we're preaching, it's foolishness to the world. We're the trash of the world. We're the off-scouring. That word off-scouring... Some ancient Greeks had a custom of casting certain worthless people into the sea during times of plague or famine, and as they'd cast the individual over the board or off of a cliff, they would say, be our off-scouring, you piece of trash. It's literally what they would say. The victims were called scrapings in the belief that they would wipe away a community's guilt. And that's what Paul says, that's what we are. And you know what? That's appointed for you and for me as well. Romans chapter eight, verse 17. There's a verse that we are like, yes! We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And if children, then heirs. We're going to be rich. We're the heirs of God. That's better than being heirs of Bill Gates. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Woohoo! tell me more, Rory. Okay, the verse continues on. If indeed we suffer with him. Go back. Go back. back. I like the heirs part. I don't like part B. If indeed you suffer with Jesus, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, then you need to take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German man back living in the the 30s and 40s. And uh, he was an educated man. He came to America and was studying in America about the time that persecution arose over the Jews over in Europe with Hitler. And as the blitzkrieg started happening, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to stay in America and live a safe life. He said, how can I live over here when my people are suffering under tyranny, over heresy, and he went back willingly to preach the gospel to a group of people who were suffering. He was, ended up being arrested by the Germans, spending years in prison. And he ended up being hung in a Flossenberg concentration camp one month before Hitler committed suicide. And he wrote in many of his different books, but he wrote a, a, a manuscript on discipleship and the cost of being a disciple. And he wrote this, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. You want to hear that? Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. The Corinthians are not above their apostles. That is why Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. The opposite of discipleship is to be ashamed of Christ and his cross and all the offense with which the cross brings in its train. I think that's where the Corinthians were as Paul writes to them. Ashamed of the cross, ashamed of the suffering that the cross brings, ashamed to be disciples. And Paul would write to the Philippians, to you Philippians, it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, which is great, but also to suffer with him. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In fact, he starts that sentence with, yes. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In Acts chapter 5, the church, being empowered by the Holy Spirit, begins to go out, and witness in the community, and witness in the synagogue, and they get arrested, and they get persecuted, and they get, have angels come and deliver them from prisons and all these radical ways. They get commanded and told, don't you preach the gospel anymore. And they say, how can we but speak the things which we've seen and heard? We've got to. We've got to obey God more than man. And after they're arrested, and after they're sternly warned, and after they're threatened, they all get together and they have a prayer meeting. And they worship God. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit there, you read in Acts 5. And at the end of the situation, after they're again arrested and commanded not to preach again, it says that they all rejoiced that they were worthy, were counted worthy, to suffer shame for his name. I remember a few years ago, one of the missionaries at Calvary Chapel Corvallis showed a a film of... um, Christians in another country, and I wish I could remember where they were, I want to say Pakistan, but their uh, church on a Sunday morning is surrounded by policemen, and a guy drives up in a caterpillar and like drives over the church and just like demolishes the church, and it shows films of Christians just rejoicing, woohoo, we wanted a new building anyways, no, that's not why, but they said, we just can't believe that we are counted worthy To suffer shame for Christ's name. And within that same film were were women being interviewed whose husbands had recently been slaughtered for the name of Christ. And they were smiling and rejoicing that God would count them worthy to suffer shame for his name. In verse 14, this is the heart of Paul and it's the heart of me this morning as I speak I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. We need to be careful that as a church, we don't adopt a triumphal approach to Christian practice. A triumphal approach to Christian Christian practice will become very difficult to continue on in and to accept and to adopt as life goes on And authentic Christian living actually challenges the status quo that we find ourselves in. If we were to preach that there's no suffering and we're to just be full and rich and just, you know, then as the cancer report comes, as the marriage is hurting, as the child rebels, as the animal gets hit by a car, as you lose your job, you can't reckon it with health, wealth, and prosperity theology. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet in its fullness. There's glory, but it's not all glory. We've not yet entered into the fullness of what it is to be ours. In verse 15, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many followers for in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. They didn't have printing back then, and Paul couldn't just hand out Bibles at the time. And so people had to learn the gospel by following his life. As Dodds says, it was Christ's own self-sacrifice that threw such a spell over the apostles and gave them so new a feeling towards their fellow men and so new an estimate of their deepest needs. After seeing how Christ lived, they could never again justify themselves in living for self. And it is because we are so sunk in self seeking and worldliness that we continue on so unapostolistic, unapostolic. Sorry. We have the example of Christ, God himself dwelling among us as a suffering servant. A disciple is not above his master. And how can we continue on when we have the example of Jesus in front of us? When we have the example of the apostles whose lives were changed witnessing their example? How can we continue on as the Corinthians or as the Laodiceans feeling that we have no need of New Testament Christianity? We're good. We're not good. God has much for us he has much for us there's great hope there's wonderful comfort there's salvation there's healings there's uh joy there's community and friendship closer than brothers there's the hope of eternity there's the hope of christ's return There's watching people being saved out of the miry pit and watching the Lord set their feet upon the rock and then we all rejoice and worship and fear God because of what he's done. There's so much exciting stuff that the kingdom of God is doing now. But it's not a life of total and complete health, total and complete wealth, and total and complete prosperity. Not according to the world's standards. And so may the Lord press us this morning into a life that would suffer as Jesus suffered. You know, the beautiful thing is, is that we don't have a God who is sitting up on a deck chair right now, sipping lemonade. We have a God that says, hey, you're going to suffer. Count it a joy when you suffer. If you're going to follow me, they hated me. They're going to hate you. A disciple's not above his master. But guess what? I've been there. I've experienced it. And even now, I'm not just hanging out in heaven and people are feeding me grapes and fanning me with palm fronds. You know, I'm praying for you. I'm cheering you on. And I sent the third person of the Trinity to come and to dwell in every Christian that they might have power and hope and joy in the midst of this service. Good warning for us. And that's what Paul says it is it's a warning to the church today. We'll have the worship team come up. And you can put your Bibles aside and we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray. Lord God, I just confess that I read the New Testament and just so many times I just think, oh, it's not for me. That's not for me. That's... That was a cultural thing back then. And here, here I am. And Lord, in some cases that might be true. But when it comes to suffering, and when it comes to pouring ourselves out as offerings, as living sacrifices, and the pain that that might entail, Lord, Lord, We're to be all in. We're to count the cost and realize that awaits us. And Lord, that's hard to think of in our flesh and you know that. And I thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us as orphans to go through it alone and to just muster up strength and courage through a great motivational speech. But no, you sent the helper. You sent the comforter. You sent the Holy Spirit that we might be Powered and empowered to be martyrs for you. Lord, you see the culture we live in. You live you you see our worldview in America. Lord, you see the desire for riches and the desire to see ourselves succeed for our own namesake, for our own popularity. To rise up in this world and be victorious and be glorified. And Lord, you see the temptations around us. And Lord, we just pray that, would you pray for us right now, God. Lord, would you stir it up in our hearts to be martyrs. To live as martyrs, and if need be, to die as martyrs. Lord, in the things in the New Testament that you challenge us towards, you exhort us towards, you commission us towards, towards things that would take a great sacrifice or be uncomfortable or might take another night of the week or might cost a bit of money or might sacrifice some family time. Or it might mean I have to lose a day of work to do this or that. The things that you call us towards God. Lord, may we be willing and ready to obey. Lord, as Paul says, imitate me. In another passage, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ. And so, Lord, this afternoon, we just focus our eyes on Jesus. The one who motivated so many men to go to their deaths. Motivated so many men to watch their children be fed to lions. To watch them be put to death by the sword. Boiled alive in oil. Put into hollowed out brass balls and put into a fire. Fed to lions killed by the edge of the sword, wander around homeless, cold, hungry, poorly clothed, with the man, Christ, who motivated so many men to be beaten. God, would you push us on today? As we come to the communion table, we will take a cracker that's to be a symbol of the broken body of Jesus. And we're going to take a little cup of juice that's a symbol of the blood of Jesus. And we're going to go and we're going to sit and we're going to ponder how Jesus poured himself out for us. And we're going to cry out that he would enable us to pour ourselves out for him. We remember the cross today, Lord. We remember your body broken and your blood spilled. As we close in this song, and I just encourage you to maybe just take a minute before you come forward to the communion table and just ask the Lord if you that today, if you were, would be likened to the Corinthians or if you would be likened to Paul and the apostles. And if he would show you that you're more of a Corinthian man today, that you would just ask for forgiveness And you would just surrender to all that he would have for you to truly be part of his kingdom today. And then you can come forward and take the cup and take the bread and take it to your seat. And I want you to ponder it again in light of all that Jesus sacrificed. And then as you're ready, you can take in your own timing.